Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. The term safe sex has been the mantra of sex education classes and public health campaigns for decades. However, it might not be the best or most effective message when it comes to promoting healthy sexuality. I say this because there's actually no such thing as 100% safe sex. There's always going to be some degree of risk, and that risk could be physical or emotional. Whenever you have sex, you're making a choice about the level of risk that you're willing to take on in order to experience the benefits, joys, and pleasures of sex. And that's why we need to talk about sexual autonomy, the freedom to choose your own risks. It's a tricky topic to discuss, though, because everyone has a different risk tolerance. And we have this tendency to shame everyone who has a different risk tolerance than we do. For example, someone who prefers less risk might be called a prude, whereas someone who prefers more risk might be called depraved or perverted. And when rampant sex shaming occurs, that hurts everyone because it makes us all less likely to talk openly about sex out of fear of being judged. Today's show is therefore going to be all about sexual autonomy, sex shame, and sexual decision-making. I am joined by Zachary Zane, the sex and relationship columnist for Men's Health, where he writes a column titled Sexplain It. He is the co-author of the book Men's Health, Best Sex Ever. Zach's latest book is titled Boy Slut, a memoir and manifesto. A quick note about content. This episode contains very frank discussion of sexual matters. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. Enhance your sexual performance with FirmTech. Check out their tech ring, which is designed to give you harder, longer lasting erections while also tracking your erectile fitness. Wear it at night to monitor nocturnal erections and cardiovascular health, or wear it during lovemaking for a boost in the bedroom. Unlike other erection rings, FirmTech's is easy to put on, adjustable to your comfort, and it can go on whether you're hard or soft. To learn more, check the show notes or visit myfirmtech.com and be sure to use my exclusive discount code, Justin20, to save 20% off your purchase. Again, that's myfirmtech.com. Hi, Zach, and welcome back to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hey, good to be back. It's been uh, a few years. <laughs> it has been a while. You were one of my first few guests on the show way back in episode... 22. So 150 some episodes later, it's a pleasure to have you here again. Now, today we're going to be diving into one of the chapters from your new book, Boy Slut. But before we do that, let me first ask you to give us the brief synopsis of what this book is all about. Sure. So it's a collection of personal essays about how to overcome sexual shame. And each chapter is kind of dedicated to something different. So for example, the first chapter is about uh, mental health and sexual guilt. I grew up with terrible OCD growing up that manifested with a lot of sexual guilt. Like the opening chapter of the book is me in therapy at eight years old crying because I can't stop imagining my therapist naked and imagining that I'm this terrible person for imagining people naked. I have another chapter that's all about rejection. Why are we so bad at handling rejection and giving rejection when that's probably one of the most universal things that we've all experienced at some point in our lives, unless if you're Michael B. Jordan, we've all been rejected at some point in our lives here. 
I talk a lot about bisexuality, polyamory, various kinks, and I do so in a very hopefully funny and extremely raunchy manner. One thing I'm really proud of in this book is it's not your typical little gay boy from the South who grew up in a Christian conservative household, get kicks out for being gay, moves to New York City, finds his chosen family, and lives happily ever after. And while those narratives are extremely important, and I'm not trying to shade them, that was just not my experience. And even though I grew up in a very queer-affirming, a very sex-positive household, I still had so much sexual shame because sexual shame is so insidious. We get it from all aspects of our lives. We get it from our teachers, our friends, the family, the media, religion, culture, everything. So no matter who you are, you experience sexual shame, and we all need to work towards trying to remove that. And that's kind of what this book with an absolutely ridiculous, arguably offensive title is all about. Yes, it is not your typical sex book, but I do think the broader point it makes about reducing sexual shame and the problems associated with that is so, so important. It just tells it from a different perspective than you might have heard before. Now, early on in your book, you make an important point that I think many of us in the field haven't really stopped to ponder, which is that men have been largely left out of the sex positivity movement. So in the last few decades, we've seen a dramatic shift around sexual messaging given to women. I mean, I remember back when I was in college, every magazine in the grocery store checkout had headlines like, how to please your man. And that wasn't that long ago, but you really don't see that anymore. Now it's how to be sexually empowered, how to get what you want in bed. And there isn't really a parallel conversation about how men can better engage with their sexuality. And I think that's actually a big part of the reason why the nofap and anti-porn and anti-masturbation movements have kind of picked up steam, you know, because there's this this void when it comes to talking about male sexuality. You know, we're either not talking about it or we're just saying zip it up, don't do it. So why do you think that is? And why is it important for men for everyone to be part of the sex positivity conversation? Well, I'll first start with why it's important. If you ever plan on having sex with a man or interacting with a man, (laughs) then men need to be included in this conversation, right? Because sex doesn't just influence how good sex is and influences our relationships, our identity, every single aspect of our life. So it's important for men to be included in in this. Otherwise, we're going to end up with just a generation of, quote unquote, you know, just sexually empowered women and these duds of men who are still doing the same bullshit that they keep doing. So I think it's really important to change that and to include men in this narrative. And as to why they haven't, I'm not exactly sure, but I can hypothesize here. I think there's this idea that it's easier for men to have sex and all men really just are horny all the time, have no problem getting hard. And because of that, they don't need any help when that's not true. Obviously, men have sexual insecurities. Obviously, men have different levels of how horny they are, how sexually aroused they get. But I think there was this idea because of you know toxic masculinity that all men are horny, all men know what they want to do, all they want to do is pound, and we don't accept help. I think that's a big thing too. Men in general are the ones who are less likely to seek help, and if they feel like they seek help for sexual issues, then they've failed their sacred duty of being a man, which is to know how to fuck and to give everyone 10 billion orgasms and to come buckets all over the place. So I think men are kind of less receptive in general, to learning about their own sex and sexuality 
And because of that, we've just had less conversations about it. Yeah, and I think it's also the case that a lot of men just don't talk about sex a lot with their friends or, you know, they're not getting it in the form of sex ed in school. And so there's just a lack of ability to talk, to communicate about these sorts of things, which is part of the reason why we just need to normalize talking about sex more generally. Absolutely. So you have a chapter in your book that's all about sexual autonomy and freedom and the ability for us to choose the risks that we want to take when it comes to sex. And I talk about this in my book as well. You know, there's always some level of risk when it comes to sex. There can be STI risk, emotional risk, unintended pregnancy risk, and other health risks, depending on what exactly it is that you're doing. So there's always some risk and you have to choose what you're comfortable with. But some people are fine with more risk than others. And your risk tolerance can also change over time and across situations. But one of the big messages we hear in sex education is around this idea of safe sex, right? We've sort of been conditioning people to think that sex can be done in this totally risk-free way as long as they do it under this narrow set of circumstances. So maybe we need to shift the conversation away from safe sex to safer sex or risk-aware or risk-informed sex. So I'm curious for your take on that. Yeah, so I 100% agree here. And this was a chapter that was actually the second chapter I wrote of the book. I was very the most excited to write this chapter, and I spent a lot of time on it. And it's pretty interesting seeing some like early feedback and reviews where this is the chapter that infuriates people the most. And seemingly purposely like misconstruing my words, but I'm like, that was your takeaway? Are we reading the same thing here? Because like I talk about exactly as you say, we have different levels of risk that we feel comfortable taking. Right now, queer men in New York City in general, tend to have a higher risk level for STIs since the advent of PrEP. So PrEP, I'm sure your listeners are aware, but pre-exposure prophylaxis, you know, it's medication that you can take daily and it decreases the likelihood of acquiring HIV by like 99.9%. And because of that, we're seeing a lot more men engaging in casual sex without condoms. And what that means is PrEP only protects against HIV. It means that you can still get gonorrhea, you can still get chlamydia, you can still get all these other STIs. But these men have made the decision that, okay, I'm okay getting these STIs. For me, it's worth it to just go in, get a shot once every year, and to be able to have unprotected sex. And that's the risk they're taking. That's a fine risk in my book. Like As long as they are not lying to their partners, as long as they are not manipulating their partners saying things like, oh, I can't come without a condom or we shouldn't be wearing condoms. If both partners agree and are completely okay with this risk, then I think it should be between those two partners. But a lot of people are like, oh, you're advocating for people to not wear condoms. I said, that is absolutely not what I'm advocating for. I think there's just an inherent level of risk no matter what. And as you said yourself, condoms don't protect against everything. They do not protect against syphilis or herpes because those are spread through skin-to-skin contact. Of course, condoms can break. They fall off. And like we don't wear condoms when we're doing oral sex 99.9% of the time. And yet there, you can absolutely get oral chlamydia and oral gonorrhea. I've gotten both of those before. But that's a risk that is deemed acceptable for some reason. In terms of wearing condoms and not wearing condoms, you are absolutely putting yourself at risk for gonorrhea and chlamydia every time you suck a penis or get your penis sucked or get eaten out. And yet that's considered acceptable socially. 
why is that considered acceptable socially? Yet the decision that I've made to not wear condoms while having sex, while having penetrative sex, is not considered acceptable socially. So I think there's always risk factors you you have when you have sex. And you kind of said this yourself. Not just STIs, but like think of all the emotional risks we have while having sex. You know, fear of getting our heart broken, fear of someone not texting back, fear of a million things here, and yet we still do it. Those emotional risks, I would argue, last typically a lot longer than if you just get gonorrhea and you get treated for it. But still, we're okay with those emotional risks. So I, again, am not advocating for people to not wear condoms. Absolutely. If you want to wear condoms, you should. I also acknowledge that STIs have a different effect on people with vulvas than they do on people with penises. And it tends to just kind of be worse for people with vulvas. And you can have potential ramifications if you want to give birth and things like that. So that's something that should be considered for people with vulvas versus people with penises. We are all different and we should be allowed to make the choices that we want to make. And I think that's at the root of our sexual autonomy and our sexual freedom. But inherent in this is you have to know the risk factors. And I think that's kind of an issue that we're running into. Because we don't have proper sex education, because people are not being as truthful as they should be when discussing their condom use to their partners, we run into situations where people are taking risks that they did not know that they were taking, and that is not fair, and that's not what I'm advocating for. You have to be extremely honest about your sexual risk, and especially with, I know in my experience being bisexual, I've had very different experiences when I've exposed men to STIs as opposed to exposed women to STIs. Men, you know, the guy on Grinder who said, come in and feed me your load, and I come inside him and I text him two weeks later saying, oh, I got gonorrhea, you might want to get tested. He goes, thanks for letting me know, I'll get tested and checked this week. It's not his first rodeo. That has not been my experience with women. It tends to be a lot bigger of a deal, which is why I tend to wear more condoms with women. And when they say, I do not want to wear a condom with you, I say, just so you know, I am high risk. I use those words explicitly. I say, I'm high risk for STIs. You will not get HIV because I'm on PrEP and I'm diligent about taking it, but you are putting yourself at risk for gonorrhea, chlamydia, and other STIs. Like, are you okay with that? And there are certain partners who I have who we have condom sex until... I get STI tested, and they're the people I go to after it comes back negative. So then we get to have unprotected sex for whatever it is. We usually just go on a fuck fest for like 24 hours. And then I let them know, okay, the next time I've now had unprotected sex with other men, let's wait till I get tested. I get tested every six weeks. So as you can tell, this requires more communication. This requires more honesty. It requires more getting tested. But for me analyzing these calculated slutty risks, it is worth it. And for my partners, it's worth it. And I'm able to have unprotected sex in a way that, to me, feels acceptable. And it's acceptable to my partners. And we absolutely take on these risks very happily. Fascinating answer. And I can see why this chapter is so controversial and provocative. Because in my experience, people have just very different feelings about STIs. You know, I would say most people tend to fall into one of two camps. A majority fall in the camp where they're just terribly frightened of STIs and think that getting an STI is one of the worst things that can happen to you, no matter what that specific STI is. You know, certainly some are worse than others, but just STIs are a risk that they don't want to assume. So some of them 
will avoid sex or they'll only have sex under very limited circumstances when they know that they can get that risk of STIs as close to zero as possible. On the other hand, there are some people I know who just don't think STIs are a big deal at all. You know, they see it as a thing that can happen. Like, if you have sex, and if you have enough sex with enough partners, you're bound to encounter one at some point. But most of them are preventable or treatable. And so for some people, they might get the HPV vaccine. They might be on PrEP, right? So their risk of HPV and HIV are both extraordinarily low. And then things like syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia are all pretty easily treatable with antibiotics. And so then that leaves things like herpes, which if you contract it, you can take daily antivirals. And, you know, for most people, that's very effective at managing symptoms. And then, you know, so it's just when they start to take all these precautions, they don't see STIs as being particularly risky, right? So it's just people are very different in their views on this. And I think what's important to note is you're talking about the precautions being taken. I don't like when people are say you're very cavalier about not wearing condoms. And I'm like, that is not true. First of all, I've had my HPV shots. I've had the Gardasil all three. I've gotten my meningitis shots, which helps prevent gonorrhea. I'm getting tested every six weeks. I'm letting my partners know about the other partners I've unprotected sex with. I'm wearing condoms when my partners want to, or even when they're like, I want to not wear a condom with you. I'm like, no, I know you're someone who would be upset <laughs> if you got an STI. And I, and I know that. And we're not, right now we're in the heat of the moment right now. And so I know you're saying this, but I know you and we've been hooking up for a while and you're going to regret this decision and we can have this conversation. Not when I'm about to stick my dick inside of you and both of our brains are in lizard brain at the moment, not thinking clearly here. So one thing that goes into this is really explaining that there's a lot of thought and preparation and honesty and communication that goes into this. And I think really making it clear that like, especially a lot of women in general, a lot of straight cis women in general have had those dudes who are the fucking worst when it comes to condoms, who are manipulative, who lie, who are like, oh my God, I can't come without a condom, baby. Don't you trust me? Come on, baby. Don't you trust me? I'm not with anyone else. Let's just do it. Let's just do it. And like, I am not talking about those men. Those men are pieces of shit. This is not at all what I'm discussing when I'm talking about your right to not wear a condom to have sexual autonomy. These men are manipulating. These men are lying. Like, like that is not at all what I'm advocating for. And so I've noticed I get a lot of the biggest resistance with cis straight women for this reason. Because A, they're not part of gay culture, but B, they've just had these negative, shitty experiences time and time again and I want to be like, fuck, I, those guys are trash. Like, I cannot emphasize that enough. That is not who I'm talking about right now. And I really hope that my language and the way that I write is not going to then be misappropriated by those fucking douchebags. Like, I, I cannot emphasize that enough. Yeah. So for the sake of clarity, you know, what you're saying is when you're talking about what are we going to call it? Safer sex, right? It's where you've taken a bunch of precautions in advance that can minimize your risk for any STIs so that any additional risk that you take on by not wearing a condom is minimized, but you're also communicating about this with a partner and it's a mutual decision, right? It's not about pressuring or coercing someone into doing something that might feel unsafe or, or particularly risky to them. Period. Exactly. Thank you for summarizing my uh, passionate rant. But yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to say here. 
So different people have different concerns about STIs, different comfort levels with it in terms of what they're willing to do sexually. And, you know, they're all valid. People can make their decisions for themselves in terms of what's right for them and their body. But one thing you argue in your book is that STI shaming and stigma hurts us all. So why do we need to reduce the stigma around STIs? And what are some of the things that we can do to accomplish that? And I think there's something to be said where a lot of people the reason why the risk tolerance is so low is not actually the physical risks. It's they're more afraid of the shame and the stigma that goes along with it. I mean, first of all, it just comes from a place of sex negativity. It's often a form of slut shaming, you know, and the way they throw like, oh, that woman's dirty. She's gross. She definitely has gonorrhea or chlamydia. It's a way to first and foremost, start to control the behavior of women. That's what you're doing when you're STI shaming. That's what you're doing when you're slut shaming. You're taking away that autonomy. And I think also because we have the stigma of STIs and the shame around STIs, people are not honest. People are not honest about their previous sexual encounters. They're not honest when they do have an STI and should be disclosing it or uh, because they're so afraid of the response that they're going to get from the other person. So I think we'd be able to be more honest. I think we'd be able to be more sex positive. We use STI shaming to control women's behavior, to control people's behavior, to control men's behavior too, you know, calling them a slut or dirty or whatever it is. So I really think regardless of what your risk level is, you should not be shaming someone for having an STI. You should not think of it as gross or anything like that. You can be like, hey, I don't want to get this because I don't want to put my body under this stress and to get a preventative infection. And even that, why I always say STIs as opposed to STDs. Like, gonorrhea is not a disease. And calling it a disease is already shaming STIs. You don't call strep infection a disease, you call it an infection. So the fact that we're calling STIs an infection that's easily treatable with gonorrhea a disease already just shows the way we think of STIs. We think of these people as being diseased for having sex. That's absurd. So I really think at the forefront of the sexual positivity movement, we really need to stop shaming STIs. And I think that's really crucial for us to reach a place of sex positivity and sexual autonomy. Yeah, a couple of thoughts there. One is that I know my friends in public health would say I'd be remiss if I didn't point this out, but they use the terms STI and STD for different reasons, uh, with STI being the term that's used anytime an infection is present, regardless of whether or not somebody has symptoms. And then they use the term STD only for instances in which you have an infection that is causing symptoms. So I understand your usage of it. Just wanted to point that out that in terms of how public health messengers would use it, they see an important distinction between those two terms. But independently of that, you do have a valid point for the social connotations that people have with those specific terms, you know, STD disease sounds a lot more frightening to a lot of people and I think can contribute to that stigma surrounding them. But I think you make a lot of important points about, you know, when there is this big level of stigma against STIs, that often actually makes people afraid of going and getting tested. You know, if you survey people in terms of who are sexually active, who haven't been tested, what are their reasons for not doing it? Oftentimes you'll see that they don't want to know the answer, right? That they'd rather have an STI and, you know, be blissfully unaware of it rather than have the social consequences of having a diagnosis, having it on your medical record, having to communicate that to a partner. So it's like when you have this high level of stigma around STIs, 
that's actually bad for everybody's health because people don't get tested, they don't talk about it. And so that in and of itself is an important reason for reducing the stigma around this. Absolutely. So there's a lot of sex shaming that happens in society beyond the STI shaming and stigma that we've talked about. And a lot of it is directed toward the queer community. But even within the queer community itself, there's a lot of sex shaming that happens when it comes to sexual and other risk-taking. And one prominent example of that that we saw recently during the pandemic was you had all of these social media accounts created like Gays Over COVID that were expressly designed to publicly shame and humiliate gay and bisexual men who were traveling, going to circuit parties, hooking up, or otherwise were sexually active. And we saw something similar happen during the recent monkeypox, now known as mpox, outbreak. So in these times of heightened risk, sex shaming seems to increase, and it's often invoked in the name of preserving public health, but shame is not a very effective way of changing sexual behavior. So can you speak a bit about that and also why sex shaming is still so prevalent even within the sex positive queer community? I think it's something to be said we learned from HIV AIDS epidemic in the 80s and 90s is that shame does not curb behavior. Like theoretically shame should, but at least when it comes to sexual behavior in this way, people are just going to end up lying about this stuff and still keep doing what they're doing. The gaze over COVID, the monkeypox thing, uh, part of me is just like people like having this moral superiority. Was I going out during COVID and going to the crazy circuit parties? No, I was not. And should I think you should be doing that? No, I, I don't think you should have been doing that. But I think if we want to reach these people, the answer is not to shame them sexually. The answer is like, okay, you're missing community. You're missing uh, touch in a time when you can't have physical community. You can't have touch. What are ways that we can work on with you to kind of help feel like you still have a community, you're still able to get touch without going to a circuit party? A lot of times people have this all or nothing mentality versus like you and I, we're like harm reduction, meeting people where they are. Because if you try to tell someone fuck you, you shouldn't be doing this, you're a trash and terrible person, their response is not going to be, you're right, thank you for helping me change my opinion. They're going to say, fuck you, you're a piece of shit, you're judgmental trash. So like, while I'm not condoning their behavior, and I think it was risky, and I think they were putting other members of the community at risk, our approach to this can't just be shaming. And I think it's clear that it didn't work. It didn't work for AIDS, it didn't work for COVID, and it didn't seemingly work for monkeypox, but what did work for monkeypox is people getting their vaccine as quickly as possible and asking for people to just curb their behavior because there is a light at the end of the tunnel here. Yes, we're having trouble accessing the vaccine right now, but they do exist. You will get it. You are going to have sex and partying again. We just need you to kind of cool it for a few months and here's some things you can do in that few month period. It gives me very velvet rage vibes. You know what I mean? Where it's just like this sense of, we still probably have some internalized shame and guilt about these desires. And instead of looking inwards, it's easier to project and to shame these other people as well. Yeah. You know, something else I was thinking of as you were speaking was in terms of why some people might take on this heightened risk during a pandemic and go out and engage in sexual activity. Well, step back and think about what the motivations for that are. You know, why do people have sex? 
And it's not just about physical pleasure. You know, sex can be about feeling alive. It can be about reducing stress. It can be about connecting with another person. And, you know, we know that there are much higher rates of mental health issues in the LGBTQ community, much higher rates of depression and anxiety. And I think sex often becomes a way of kind of managing or dealing with some of those mental health struggles sometimes. And so in that way, sex can be therapeutic because it's providing that need for touch or intimacy or connection or providing pleasure or enjoyment in a time when you might otherwise be experiencing high levels of stress and depression and anxiety. And so when talking about all of this, there's also the discussion of, you know, maybe we should be talking about mental health issues um, (laughs) as part of this as well, because it's inextricably tied to sexual health, you know, mental health, physical health, sexual health, all these things go together. And I don't know what my question is there, but. (laughs) No, I I agree wholeheartedly here. It's all related. I know during COVID, I don't have the facts in front of me, so do not quote me on this. But I know there were a lot, I believe, if this is true, that there were more deaths from like ODs and fentanyl poisoning for like the 18 to 49 demographic than there was actually deaths through COVID. And it's because people were at home doing drugs unsafely because, and you're not doing drugs unsafely by yourself during COVID because you're having a great and fun time. You're doing it because your life is terrible. And I also wonder, and again, I don't have the stats in front of me, kind of what the suicide rate was among LGBTQ community during COVID and what the drug rate use was for that. Those numbers were high as well. And so we need to focus on the intersection with sex and mental health, sex and community, sex and our identity. And that's one thing I talk about a lot in Boy Slut is like sex isn't just sex. Sex influences every single aspect of your life from your relationships with your friends, your family, your coworkers, how you think, how you behave, how you act. And so when we don't talk about sex or assume sex is just about pleasure or this one aspect we're really missing how ubiquitous and how important and how influential sex is. Yeah. You know, and that's something I saw in my research is that LGBTQ persons reported disproportionate negative impacts on their mental health during the pandemic due to restrictions, lockdowns, and other sorts of issues. And I think Partly for that reason, sex took on heightened importance to some people because it is this very powerful force in our lives. So we've talked about a lot of different things here today, but I'm curious if you have any other thoughts you want to share on sexual autonomy and freedom or how to get comfortable making your own choices and setting your own risk level. A part of it's figuring out what you want to do and what you feel like you should do, because it's not just... I'm trying to say it's actually about the cultural norms that are different for everyone. So for example, we often think of like, okay, let's see you're this little person from the South, more Christian, more conservative. You think that sex is only for procreation. You should only be wearing condoms 99% of the time. You should only be having sex for marriage or whatever the fuck. So that person's thinking that's what they feel like they should do versus what they want to do. And that's very different from a gay man living in New York City who feels like, and I just answered this for sex explain it a sex and relationship advice column at Men's Health, like uh, I think last week or two weeks ago, where this gay man is like, I like wearing condoms. Even though I'm on prep, I have lower risk tolerance for STIs, and I feel like I'm losing my mind right now because even guys on Grinder or Sniffies, no one is wearing condoms. And 
I don't know what to do. I feel like a part of me is just like, I should just give in and not wear condoms. So he has a different issue than this woman does. So it's not just like, oh, all sex negativity. It affects us differently. They're all different cultural norms and societal norms, depending on the group that you're a part with. So I think the biggest thing to do is figuring out what those norms are, acknowledging them, like verbally stating them. And then from there, you can think about what it is that I want to do. And then perhaps finding a community that's more in line with what you want, making sure you find sexual partners who have more compatible kinks, who like wearing condoms, who have the same levels of risk tolerance as you do. So I think it's first acknowledging and then being aware of and then realizing that you're not alone, that no matter what your sexual desires are, no matter how fucking crazy kinky you are or anything else, there are a gajillion other people exactly like you and then going forth and finding that community. Yeah, it's all about getting clarity on your boundaries and don't compromise them for the sake of trying to fit in because that's not going to lead to positive outcomes, right? So stick to your boundaries and if at all possible, find a new way of interacting with your community, new people and new community itself where people will be respectful of those boundaries. Because it is hard. It is hard setting boundaries. And when people do not respect them, like people always say, set boundaries, set boundaries. It's like, I still struggle setting boundaries. Like even <laughs> yeah. among the people I love, it's not an easy thing. But if you're in a group of people who are not respecting your boundaries, that's not the group of people for you. Yep. That's what I talk about with finding your community and finding your people, a place where you can express what you want and those will be respected. And even if they actually have different sexual desires from you, as long as they respect you and your boundaries, that's also okay too. It's not that everyone has to have, be on the exact same level. It's finding people who respect you and your boundaries. Exactly. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Zach. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and to get a copy of your latest book? Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for turning my uh, ramblings and synthesizing them and making them coherent. I very much appreciate that. But um, so yeah, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram. Both of those, my handles are Zachary Zane underscore. The underscore is at the end. Also, ZacharyZane.com is where I have all my information. And you can buy my book, Boy Slut, A Memoir and Manifesto, anywhere books are sold coming May 9th. Last but not least, I actually have a digital zine, also called Boy Slut, but this one is nonfiction erotica. So I write a lot of my sex stories that happen, and I have other writers too. So you have kinksters across the globe sharing their real sex stories that happened. And that was just the side project that people loved it, and I loved writing it. And it is so fun and so raunchy and so ridiculous and if you're someone who enjoys erotica and queer erotica, I highly, highly recommend it. Well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, and Zach's new book, Voice Let. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. 